Hello, everyone. Do you love this podcast and want to find a way to support it? Well, guess what? You can become a sustaining member today. You can do that by visiting the Talk Classic to Me page at anchor.fm. That's A-N-C-H-O-R dot F-M. Once there, just click the support button and select the recurring amount you want to contribute to the podcast. This helps keep our podcast going and the good content that you have come to know and love flowing. You can also find the link to support us on our social media at Talk Classic to Me on Instagram and feel free to follow us there as well. Thank you so much for being a listener and we so appreciate you. As always, enjoy the show. Spoiler alert. If you do not want this film ruined, do not proceed. There's spoilers galore. You have been warned. Welcome to Talk Classic to Me, the classic film podcast and movie club where I, Sarah Greenfield, your host and classic film enthusiast, bring in my entertaining friends to talk about classic movies or any other old-fashioned form of media that strikes my fancy. On today's show, we're talking about the film White Christmas from 1954 with my wonderful guests Zoe Palco and Jessica Rice. I have two wonderful guests this week on Talk Classic to Me. My dear friend Jessica Rice is joining us, and then our old friend on this podcast, Zoe Palco. I'm Thank back. You so much for joining me. Hi, guys. Hi. Hi. Thank you for having us. This week on our show, we watched the film White Christmas from 1954. Oh my God, such a classic. And the reason the three of us are talking about it together is because Zoe, Jesse, and I used to all live in Chicago, like right after college. We all went to college together at the University of Michigan. Go blue. And uh, we were all buds. And we all moved to Chicago around the same time, and we're all kind of like struggling artists at the time. And one of our like young person, we're kind of in the cast of Friends, but we're real people thing that we did um, was every Christmas, I feel like we would go ice skating together and then we'd watch White Christmas together as a group. And it was so lovely and beautiful. So when I picked this movie, I was like, well, I know who I want to talk to about it. Plus it's Jesse's favorite movie. <laughs> Of, of all time. Of all time. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, that's what we're watching White Christmas. Guys, I know you've seen it several times. What do you think? Yeah, I've seen it. I've seen it a handful, you know, just like an even like 25 times in my life, probably like very casual viewer here for sure. <laughs> but it's like, it's not Christmas without White Christmas. It's just not. It's like a warm blanket of happiness. And so you had said something the other day about how, um, like, because Zoe and I talk in real life, too, um, about how this movie was more special because it, like, became a part of our friendship thing. So, like, you have positive memories associated with it because you didn't grow up with it necessarily. Mm -hmm. But, like, we had such good times watching it that it's, like, now a part of your Christmas tradition. It's a very nostalgic movie for me. It's, it's one of those, like, if I don't watch it during Christmas and then somehow I miss it, which honestly hasn't happened in, like, Russia in many years, if, if that ever happens, like, I get really sad about it. Like, it's not really Christmas. I need it. I need this movie. And I tend to fight people that don't like it. Which can be a problem because my Wait, husband doesn't can like I it. Just, oh, I was going to say, who are the people that don't like it and what is wrong with them? Why don't they like it? Do they not like fun? My husband does, does not like it either. Um, but I torture him every year because I did grow up with this movie and it has been a family tradition to watch it on Christmas Eve every year. So watching it early in preparation for this podcast, well, first I, I immediately decided I would have to watch it twice. I couldn't just like advance the viewing. I would still have to carry on the tradition. So I, 
I was wondering if I could handle it twice in five days. <laughs> and I'm pretty sure the answer is a, is a definite yes, because it just, it, it was actually such a pleasure to just sit down and watch it instead of our family tradition usually involves, you know, cooking and eating way too much on Christmas Eve. And then it's 11 PM and no one has wrapped a present, but we have to watch white Christmas. And so it's always sort of on in the background, but we don't sit and take it in as often, you know, in recent years. And so it was just such a joy to, to kind of take a step back and really, really pay attention to it. But yeah, my husband doesn't like it either, Zoe. And um, he's a good sport. He sits through it. And I think he actually pays attention because last night he commented, I asked him what his favorite scene was. And he said uh, he liked the best things happen while you're dancing because it has a zip line. <laughs> that's funny because that's my favorite part of the whole movie too. But it's not because of the zip line. Not for that reason. No. It took me an embarrassingly long period of time in my life to actually fully comprehend that they are on a dock during that scene. Oh, it's a dock and that's a boat and it's upside down. And this weird set is supposed to be Florida. Like I got it, but I didn't like get it. I, get I it. mean, I am with you, Zoe. It's a musical. You don't necessarily need to think. And that's what I do want to point out about this film is I think that there are some people, because I was realizing this last week, there are movies where it's like, there are movies that are good movies that you can acknowledge are good movies, but that aren't necessarily like a part of your heart and soul. And movies have different purposes, right? Not every single movie needs to be like an award-winning, like deeply affecting film. Some films are just for enjoyment and fun. And this is a film that is just for enjoyment and fun. And there are certain elements that I was realizing while watching it like quote unquote critically this time, that I hadn't noticed before that I was like, oh, that's actually really cute that you did that. Like, okay, I'm gonna get into the plot summary, but I did notice this about the film this time that I had never noticed it before. And I have seen this movie, I don't even know how many times. I realized this time it starts and they're like in the army and it's Christmas Eve, 1944, World War II. They're somewhere in Europe that we don't know where they are. Location undisclosed. They're like doing a dance and stuff, but the first song, the first actual song moment of the whole film is Bing Crosby singing White Christmas. And he's singing it in front of a backdrop of like a Christmas town with homes. And then we pull out and see like the wreckage of World War II. And they're all like in the army and they're alone and they're pondering and they're sad together. And then the end of the film, they have real snow in the background. It's not a painted backdrop. They're singing White Christmas and they're singing together with families. And I was like, whoa, they just told that whole journey through the song White Christmas. Whoa, we have a character arc. And they flipped it because the set that they had was the wreckage and the real snow. But then in the beginning, it was the fake snow and the real wreckage. Exactly. So even just that little Ooh. bit of storytelling, I was like, look, there was thought there. <laughs> they really wanted to give us a journey and they did full circle. Okay, so I'm going to get into the plot summary. This movie, White Christmas, again, 1954. Uh, it stars Bing Crosby and Danny Kaye. There are so many fun facts, by the way. There are like lists upon lists of like 20 things you didn't know about White Christmas. So we're probably going to talk about that too. Um, but it's Bing Crosby and Danny Kaye. It was originally written for Fred Astaire because Bing Crosby and Fred Astaire did a bunch of those Irving Berlin musicals together. So like Holiday Inn they did together. Blue Skies they did together. But apparently the script was so bad for the first draft of this film that Fred Astaire was like, no, I'm not doing this movie. It's really bad. And he like also left Paramount at this time, which is the studio that produced this. So it was supposed to be Bing Crosby and Fred Astaire. 
Um, and then Donald O'Connor was in the mix, like from Singing in the Rain. You know, Donald O'Connor, make him laugh. Um, and then he got sick, so they put Danny Kaye in. Yes, Donald O'Connor would have been great. Yes, Fred Astaire would have been great. But Danny Kaye is a delight. I, I think it's fun. Okay, so that was my little side story of Bing Crosby. Danny Kaye. They meet in the war. Danny Kaye is like a private who's kind of a goofball. Bing Crosby is like, I'm a captain. You know I'm serious. Um, I can also sing really good. So <laughs> uh, Danny Kaye saves Bing Crosby's life. And in like the most shameless act of social networking, or not social networking, what's the word? Just networking I've ever seen and wish I possessed. Um, in the hospital bed, he's like, well, there is something you could do for me since I saved your life. Sing this song with me that I have written. And Bing Crosby's like, it's a double act. And Danny Kaye's like, I know. I shall be a partner forever now because I saved your life. So they become partners um, of song and dance. Not of love, though, you know, maybe that's another white Christmas story. They are singing and dancing partners. They end up becoming super famous, big producers. But Bing Crosby gets so into being a producer that Danny Kaye is like, ah, oh, shoot, I work all the time and I need a break. You know what this means. Bing Crosby's got to get married because that's the only solution. I can't use my words with him and tell him I need a break. I need him to be forced to take a break because he's married. So he's like, we're going to get him a wife. They go to this like nightclub to see a sister act because a friend of theirs in the army told them, you know, to go do it. So they were like, we're doing it for a pal in the army, which is a theme repeatedly throughout the film. And uh, they go see these sisters. And guess what? Each one of the guys is totally attracted to one of the sisters. And it's the different sister. So it's not the same sister. So no love triangle here. Luckily. Thank goodness. Yeah. So they, they meet these sisters who are Rosemary Clooney and Vera Ellen. And guess what? Rosemary Clooney sings really good, but doesn't dance so good, just like Bing Crosby. And Vera Ellen dances real good and is only a mediocre singer. Kind of, not that Danny Kaye's a mediocre singer, but you know what I'm saying. They just are a perfect match. Plus, Phil and Judy play at angles, and Rosemary Clooney and Bing Crosby don't. So that's another reason you know they're perfect together. Anyway, so these girls are going to Vermont, and Danny Kaye is like, I gotta get Bing Crosby married to Rosemary Clooney, so we're going to Vermont too. And when they get to Vermont, guess who's there? The general of their World War II battalion, General Waverly, who we saw, he was demoted at the beginning of the film, and if he is such a good general, why was he demoted is my constant question. It looks like he might have been injured, but I'm not totally sure. Whatever. They see their general, he has bought and like remodeled this gorgeous ski lodge and is dead broke. He put his savings and his pension into it. And they're like, well, how do we fix this? We gotta help General Waverly. I know, we'll put on a show at Christmas and we're famous. So people will show up for it. I think we should add that the general and his inn are struggling because foreshadow to climate change, there is no snow. They're in Vermont. There is no snow for the ski season and they have no business. And so the general is at risk of financial ruin because of this. Jesse has said it, yes. Although part of me was like, wait, so it's just reliant on snow? Because it seems like you didn't have a strong business plan and you weren't, you didn't totally know what you were doing. But you're right, snow would have really helped. If there was snow, business would be better, but there is no snow. That's why the ski lodge is not doing great. It's not just because the general is potentially bumbling. So they want to put on a show and 
they want to make General Wave really feel good. So they're like, you know what we're going to do? We're going to get all the soldiers that live in the New England area as part of our uh, battalion, regiment, whatever they are, to come and support the show. And we'll like honor General Waverly and it'll make them feel real good. Let's do that. Which also, I'm like, so wait, are they buying the tickets? Because wasn't the whole purpose that the show was going to sell tickets? Right? I don't know. It's very confusing. Another confusing thing that we'll get into later is, like, where is everyone sleeping? Because that cast has a billion people in it of the show that they brought. And also, where are the guests staying? Are they just going home after? I don't think there's enough rooms. Just a side note. No room at the end on Christmas Eve. Look at her. She's a natural. So, okay, they're going to do this thing for the general and to get the word out that this show is happening, Bing Crosby's going to go on the Ed Harrison show, which is not the Ed Sullivan show, and tell everybody what's going on so that the soldiers will know to come because everybody used to watch television at the same time back in the day. So he wants to do this, and Rosemary Clooney, who has fallen in love with Bing Crosby, thinks that he's doing it for his own profit, and she's like, ew, gross, I no longer want to be a part of this relationship, but I'm not going to tell you why, I'm just going to leave, so everyone is super confused about it. So she like leaves him, and he's like, I don't know why she's mad at me, but she is. So he goes on the television program to tell everybody to come to the inn and Rosemary Clooney sees it and then realizes like oh my god I was wrong he's not doing this for personal gain what a fool I was she shows up for the big show the big show is a success the general feels good about his life Bing Crosby and Rosemary Clooney are together Danny Kaye and Vera Ellen are together and they had their whole own side plot which I'm sure we'll get into at some point in the podcast and everyone's happy and it snows So there's a white Christmas, and we know the general's business is going to be okay. Aww. Bam. And there are excellent musical numbers sprinkled in throughout. I love how this movie is so obviously like a fluffy little piece of happiness. So you'd think the synopsis of this movie would be like a couple sentences long, but I challenge anyone to try to give a synopsis of this movie in just a couple sentences or even a short paragraph, because if you leave something out, you're like, wait, what? Why is she mad? Wait, what? The general's there? Wait, who's the general? You have to go through each like seemingly annoying like little plot point for anyone to understand the movie who hasn't seen it, yet it is this fluffy piece that you think would be able to be explained in a sentence or two. But it is amazing how much plot they do pack into it. And I think ha- having started watching this when I was a kid, I felt like the movie was so long and endless and at times it was slow. But now when I watch it, I just think it's very tight and they have, you know, peppered so much into a a two hour film. And then it's actually the musical numbers that are totally random that they kind of get away with under the guise of it being part of their Broadway review. I have actually thought this in the past of like, what the hell is this show? This is a very extensive and large review. The cast is humongous. The musical numbers are very difficult. How do they do this night after night has been a thought of mine just in general. What is this review? It has choreography, which probably is the most bizarre dance number ever created for film. There is a yay to minstrel salute. Ooh, we, there is a, yeah, too. which is a, it's bad. And yeah. like th- there's a Christmas celebration at the end and they throw in some army tunes. Like what is the show? 
what is the arc of this show? I mean, since it's a review, it doesn't actually have to fit together at all. That was the genius of it. Like, these are just some songs we put together. But you're right. What is the through line? Um, I will say I would really like to see what the original script looked like and what made it so bad. Because I agree with you, Jesse. I think as a kid... So the, when I watched this, I wasn't actually like a little kid, little kid. I think I was full circle with Zoe. Remember when I talked about Seven Brides for Seven Brothers, how I saw that in chorus class in middle school? I saw this movie for the first time in chorus class in middle school, I think when I was in sixth grade, and I fell in love with it. I just loved the musical numbers so much, and it turned out my mom had had it on VHS the whole time, and we didn't even know. So then I would just start to watch it on VHS. Um, specifically the best things happen while you're dancing. I was obsessed with that number and I just wanted to be Vera Ellen and I would try to do the choreography and I thought I was pulling it off so hard and that I just needed a partner but I don't know that I was actually pulling it off. But I wonder what the first draft of this script looked like if it was so bad. They pack a lot in um, but like kids can enjoy it because it looks gorgeous. It's got fun musical numbers. I mean, there was some fast forwarding happening when I was younger, but as an adult, you really do follow along with this like bigger plot that has deeper layers of like honoring veterans and like nostalgia for World War II and those times. Like it has some deeper messages in it that I think grownups enjoy watching. And you're right, the plot is intricate and like it has everything it needs to get the story told um where i'm going with this is like i wonder what the new writers came in and did they said they worked for eight weeks straight to punch up the script because it sucked so i'm like okay so what was the original script like and how did you make it so much better and so much more like fun because norman krasna who is like a famous person wrote the original one and i'm like why was it so bad i think it's a very smart script i, f I feel like every time i see it there are these little muttered under the breath cutting one-liners that are pretty funny and more geared for the adults like a disney movie it's engaging i will say that like i get so distracted sometimes by set pieces or costumes or like what someone's doing that i just i've never really paid attention to a lot of the dialogue still to this day after like many viewings of it like case in point i swear to god i think this is the first time i've actually gotten all the dialogue of when Ben Crosby and Danny Kaye get changed in the beginning of the movie. They're back getting dressed and unchained, like whatever they're talking about life. And I get so distracted by like the ballet of them like taking off clothes and seeing a little, little high thigh number of Ben Crosby, like when his little shirt tails looks up like, oh, Ben Crosby, look at that little white milky thigh. Like I get so distracted by all of that. I swear to God, I think this is the first time I'm like, oh, they have some like good dialogue in this. It's like witty, it goes back and forth. But like, I just, yeah, I was just so mesmerized by everything else. And that happens throughout the entire movie. Yes, I'm so glad you brought up that moment because that is, I was going to say one of my favorite moments in the movie, but there are so many one of my favorite moments in the movie. I'm just going to repeat that phrase over and over again because I have so many favorite moments. But that scene, it feels very theatrical, like you'd watch this scene in a theater. It's so choreographed, and it shows not only... It's such a great scene because it provides exposition, like we understand exactly what's happening and what's wrong and what needs to happen to move forward, but it also shows their intimacy as friends at this point because they have this routine together. He's going to, like, throw him his whatever, his shirt or his bow tie. I don't remember what he's throwing. His shoes? I forget. But they, they have it. this routine with each other. Where yeah, they they All like the you're gonna catch this and I'm gonna throw this and I'm gonna and I I don't know, I love that and the intimacy of like them changing in front of each other. And you're right, the fact that we do briefly see Bing Crosby's like tidy whities and him like hurriedly pull his shirt down. 
I really do love that moment. Um, and then it's also fun on this extra layer of like seeing how things were in the past for us, like the weird travel hangers that they have where you're like, oh yeah, back in the day, you would, your suit couldn't wrinkle. You would have had to pack it in that way. It adds all these extra layers of like a fun movie moment. I totally enjoy that scene. That hanger has given me so much fascination over the years and how high their pants are. Their how pants high their are pants so are high. And how short their ties are. But also something that has bothered me for years about the scene that I have to just air out right now is that they don't change their undershirts. And obviously they don't because they couldn't have been like that intimate on screen. Like if we saw Bing Crosby's bare naked chest, I'm sure we would not have loved that as viewers. But what bothers me is they've just done a whole show and they're wearing those undershirts and then they put on their street clothes and like go out. And I've always been like, ew, gross please oh, oh that's always bothered me because I could just tell like the bo that must be on that shirt that's just a personal Sarah side note so one thing that I really fixated on when I was watching it today for the first time it kind of on the packing and clothing topic so like how do these women get these gorgeous gowns in the tiny little suitcases they bring around like Rosemary Clooney brought one little suitcase to New York and then she comes out in that black number with a huge skirt and like are we supposed to believe that that dress got packed in that suitcase and how did it's it like come Mary out so Poppins bag like that's was... how it works in the 50s. first of all it's all lies but second of all this is my theory I have a theory that like in olden days they were like we're just gonna bring the bare essentials that we need and everything else will either follow us in a case or they'll have it there so I think that's what happened it's like because remember they're like we're gonna send you your costume so I'm like there was a whole scene where like 500 trunks came on a train and they unpacked them but we didn't see that scene so i think back in the day when you traveled you might have just brought your very bare essentials off the train with you that was just my assumption i don't know that as fact but thank you for bringing it up because it's true you can't fit that crinoline in that small suitcase I've always had a little bit of anxiety when they like escape their dressing room because of the like, evil landlord and they're like oh we don't have our like our our record player and our records and our costumes and then they leave and like girls the dude's gonna confiscate them he's gonna take them you're never gonna get your fans back you left your fans and then let's just mention how quickly they get their costumes back just want to put that out there they're there the next day in vermont the costumes are faster than the people novella must be a really nice owner of a club in person to get that happening they probably ended up paying more to novello to do all that stuff than they would have to just pay that landlord and get things like squared away normally. I'm just realizing that right now. Overnight shipping on those costumes. In terms of, of the price of things, I thought the pricing I was hearing in this movie seemed a little high. Like it cost almost $100 to take that train up to New York. And it was what, 1940 something? 1954. And to see Ben Crosby, who was famous before, like when he was in the army, it's like, you would have to pay like 950 to see him. But yet it costs $100 yeah. to go on a train, an overnight train somewhere. I'm like, that seems a little. That is, it was know. two fares, just putting that out there. So it would be like, okay. what, 45 I guess, more than that, like 50 almost a person. That's like what it costs today to go on the Amtrak <laughs> to Michigan. My like sense of things is that anything before 1950 couldn't have cost more than $5. I don't know how inflation works, but it seems expensive. There are so many lists on the internet of like, did you know this fact about White Christmas? And also some of them are incorrect. I just want to tell the people at home. So on the list, there's uh, Trudy Stevens does the voice of Vera Ellen because Vera Ellen was not a super strong singer. Although she could sing, and she's been in, like, cast recordings before. But they decided, you know, no, she shouldn't sing in this because she's an incredible dancer, and why put that strain on her? 
She's such a good dancer. She's <laughs> such a good dancer. It kills me how good she is. Trudy Stevens does her voice, but there's a rumor. Some people have misreported that it's Rosemary Clooney singing, but that's not accurate. Oh, like, really? There, yeah, there are different reports of who is actually singing based on different like things people have written, and that is all incorrect. It is Trudy Stevens. <laughs> well, poor Trudy is not getting her dues. Yeah. I think it's because there were multiple recordings. So there's the recording for the movie, but then when they wanted to like sell certain rights, like Decca Records had a person that sang for them. And like on Rosemary Clooney's album, I think maybe she did both voices. So I think there's recordings of these other people singing it, but in this specific movie, it is that woman, Trudy Stevens. So I just wanted to get that out there. Okay, good for Trudy. But she does sing her own snow when they're out of the car and they're like, they're like, it's warm outside. And they do that one brief moment of snow. That's really her voice. Not to be catty, but I'm, I'm not sure that, that- that I was that impressed by uh, well, Trudy Stevens. Well, it doesn't Stevens. sound like uh, she's just like okay. Ellen's talking voice. It's like so deep. Yeah. So it's like it a nice match. deep yeah. voice, but it doesn't quite go. Very yeah. Deep. Yeah. But it's kind of like if you're gonna go through the trouble of dubbing it, just get someone really impressive. I don't know. It is hard to hold your own with Rosemary yes. Clooney. Well, Rosemary Clooney, her like fun, interesting story. The way I've heard her described in the past is like, if we had had American Idol back in the day, like Rosemary Clooney and Tony Bennett would have been like the American Idol winners of the world. They were like people who were famous for singing. Um, they both had their hits and people really admired their voices. Rosemary Clooney didn't have like this astonishing film career. This is one of her, like probably her biggest film, her like only really big film. She's done a lot of stuff, but this is the biggest thing. And the reason she wanted to do this movie was because she wanted, first of all, everyone did this movie because they wanted to work with Bing Crosby. All the people, probably besides Vera Ellen, actually, she did this because she's Vera Ellen, but they all wanted to work with Bing Crosby so badly. And so for her, she's like, I wanted to work with Bing Crosby and I wanted to get a signature song that could be my song that I could sing forever. I don't know that she really got one in this movie. Yeah, you done me wrong. It's a wonderful number, but it definitely isn't like a show stopping like I'm gonna play that in my spare time like you want to watch it but it's not like I'm gonna crank it in the car so in the number choreography they are making fun of modern dance and like they're trying to use a lower art form to like mock a higher art form thing right so they're like look which one of these is better this cool nerve tapping lady and her sassy clothes to the jazzy music or like modern dance and I'm like we can have both both can exist whatever but then in love you didn't do right by me oh what kind of dance is represented I believe that's modern dance that we're enjoying. It's a little weird though. Like I, I think the point made in choreography actually holds to that song. Um, I, I haven't like brushed up on my fun facts about this movie, but is Bob Fosse in that scene? He is scene? not in that scene, but George Takaris is. Bernardo from West Side Story, the film, which by the way, also on the list, but I recognize that as a kid because West Side Story was a staple in our house. And I was like, that's Bernardo. And my family was like, I don't know, Sarah. And I was like, I'm telling you it's Bernardo. He was like, I got this guys. And he's great in it. And I love that dance. I like the modern choreography. When they make the heart with their hands, I'm like, yes. (laughs) I just like her gloves. I actually- I could do without the boys. I hate gloves in that. They're so bulky. (gasps) Can we actually talk about this too? How I feel like the life's mission of the costumer in this was to make Vera Ellen look amazing and to make Rosemary Clooney look bad. I know. in terrible outfits. (laughs) Those gowns with the things coming out of the butt. She always has stuff coming out of her butt. I'm yep. like, leave the costume alone. We don't need that floofy bow. We don't need that weird ass, whatever it is. It's like a, a little pin? back tat for like her Oof, black dress. I know it's just unfortunate. She has to stand next to Vera Ellen the whole movie. And I'm like, I'm so sorry. You're beautiful. 
everyone talks about like having her needing to eat and if she didn't eat and have some liverwurst and no wonder she doesn't feel good because she ate fucking liverwurst and that's that's terrifying to me the part where danny k goes hey betty how about some exercise and i'm like okay that's below the belt it's like no you didn't that really stood out to me this time too i am gonna defend the dress in love you didn't do right by me i think it really flatters her hourglass figure and she looks smoking in it i actually always hated her hair which is probably really really insulting because i think that is how rosemary clooney kind of wore it forever but I think that that was what made me want to be Judy and not Betty, was the hair. It's very 50s and very, like, maternal. It's, I was going to say, it ages her. Like, she's only 27 in this movie? 26. 26? She's 26. I, I don't know how she looked before this movie, but I wonder if it was like she wanted a signature song from this movie, but also a signature look. Mm. So I wonder if this was her look because of this movie. And so, yeah, because you're right, they, they wanted to make her look older so she could pair well with Bing Crosby. And yeah, I don't know. I wonder if that was like a decision made for this. This is how mm-hmm. her hair will be. And it was just the style too. Like I'm sure lots of 26, 27 year old women during that time period had that maternal hair because they were mothers at 26 and yeah. 27. Well, and you brought it up. Uh, she's 26 and how Vera Ellen's 33, but they have them constantly pretending that Vera Ellen's like, I'm just her baby chick. Oh yeah. And it's also funny because Vera Ellen is the sassiest, yeah. smartest, most savvy person in this film. Oh, I love Who her. Who comes up with the idea to have the big show? Oh, that's Vera Ellen. Who's constantly like manipulating and finagling things to make it work? It's Vera Ellen. Who I would say controversially is the most talented person in this movie Mm -hmm. i'm gonna go with vera ellen i don't see anybody else doing back walkovers downstairs in this film agree hands hands down i mean yeah you're right she is she is a great businesswoman and that is clear from the first moment i think her chemistry with danny Kay is great and my favorite part of this movie it always has been and always will be her dancing i mean it is just bananas her first movie ever was with danny Kay. he was her partner they have great chemistry though because I feel like when I was watching this as like a younger woman I always wanted to like be one of them like in that relationship because I always thought that the Bing Crosby um Clooney relationship was just like old and boring and like their relationship was like fun and young and like they had fun together and I just I like Vera Ellen is awesome because she's like dude you're famous you have drive I'm awesome businesswoman and an amazing entertainer and I could be fucking famous as hell. Like you and me are going to be like, cause you want, no, that Ben Crosby, once he gets married, is going to be like, I'm not going to do jack shit anymore. I'm going to be an old man with my young wife. And she's going to like probably pop out 15 babies. And Danny Kay is going to be like, I want to still do something. And you know, Vera Ellen's going to be like, yes, son. So let's like be the <laughs> biggest power couple in Hollywood. And that's like, I feel like that's the next chapter. I want to see that. I want to see them like, take over the world plus they come from a a place of friendship too like you really see it in the scene when she's trying to come up with a way to get rosemary clooney and bing crosby back together and she's like dude we should get married their conversation together when danny k's like well but who are you gonna get they're so casual with each other and you can tell they're like actually friends i do want to say what always stresses me out about this movie is what we're just talking about how like they say out loud they're like well who are you gonna find in show business that wants to give it all up and have a family and i'm like okay hold on why can you not have a family and ha- be in a business? Like 1950s, why is this not possible? First of all, even if it's not possible for other people, you are rich. You can hire help to help you. 
I don't know. It just always bothers me that like the woman has to give up everything to have a family when it's like, why can't we all have both? Right. Every time, every time I watch it, there's a little like, you know, the fire embers in my heart go, woman rage. Like it happens as, as it does with so many things in my life. Yeah. I need to calm down. It's a sign of the times. You get married, you can't have a career. Yippity do. But I feel like Vera Ellen and Danny Kay would not. I feel like they would both create an empire, which is another reason why I love her so much. Oh, 100%. At least it is both Bing Crosby and presumably right. Rosemary Clooney who might be taking a, a step back. Like it's Bing Crosby at the end who says, you know, I'm going to be too busy to, to take this on tour. So that was nice. It wasn't like, let's go and leave her at home with the nine, the nine kids. Does Clooney really want show business? Like, does she really have that drive? Like, I feel like she doesn't have it the same way as her sister does. She she was like, oh, why are you having this angle for making these wonderfully huge producers come see our show? It's like, girl, get with it. Like, this is, you're in this business. So ungrateful. I'm like, it's an amazing thing your sister did. Can you please get your stick out of your butt? Like, I'm always so annoyed with that part. Such a shrewd business move. And then she, the first thing she does when she meets these famous producers is like, confess. I mean, Come on. What but, a and she confesses in a way that doesn't make her sister look good. So if you're yeah. looking out for your sister, make her look good. Don't be like, Judy just lied to you. Sorry about it. Make it better. She's terrible. But she's terrible at communicating. We have learned this throughout the film. She communicates in like metaphors that go over everybody's head, especially when you're a child. And then <laughs> when she's upset about something, she doesn't like verbalize why she's upset. She just shows you with like, I'm upset, passive aggressive behavior. Mm. So she's not a great communicator. No. And I did this time add a little happy ending for myself when I got upset about the whole, like, you have to quit show business. I was like, wait a minute. So this is what I, my new fantasy for them is. They're going to be like the Von Trapps. Like, for a couple years, maybe they'll both leave the limelight. But then they'll be like, oh, our children sing perfectly along with us. It's going to be a family affair. And so they'll just join Danny Kay and Vera Ellen on their huge, like, they'll ride their coattails, hop back on that bandwagon. That's my new imagining for them. I want that as like a, like a series. I want the show of Clooney and Ben Crosby's brood trying to make it in show business with an overbearing, crazy, like, uncle, aunt, Vera Ellen, and Danny Kay. Like, that would be can that would be a fantastic i i think since we're talking about things that like don't necessarily hold up in 2020 we do have to talk about the minstrel number which is a pile of bullshit i do want to say it's hard i love this movie so much and it is always a very hard thing for us to get to the minstrel number and for to have them like glorifying minstrel shows uh, for people at home, if you don't know what a minstrel show is, it's basically a show around, I don't know exactly when they started because they're very, they've been around a long time, Forever. but they're very racist. Yeah. And so it's like uh, a lot of times white people in blackface putting on this like character of what they think African-American people are like, and it's degrading and stupid and awful and shitty. And I really don't like that they're glorifying that in this. Thank God they're not at least wearing blackface, unlike it's predecessor holiday in mm -hmm. um so at least like there's not that but like yes i do want to put out there i really wish that they had not chosen that song there are so many other irving berlin catalog songs they could have chosen 
and I wish they had done that instead of the minstrel number. But then it goes into one of the most epic. So we have the whole awful minstrel, like, I'd rather say a minstrel show. And then it goes into, like, this is one of the songs they used to sing. And it's like, Mandy, right? So we have this separate song, and it's Vera Ellen dancing. And she does some of the most amazing things on camera. Yeah. It's one of the most epic musical numbers I've ever seen. Yeah. Yeah. And it's just such a shame that that's connected to the garbage that is the minstrel show. Yeah. Yeah. And it shows you, like, and it, I mean, we could talk, there could be, like, a whole other podcast just about, like, the implications of this, how it indicates how, like, prevalent racism in our society and how people kind of gloss over this number. And it's like a family show and we watch it at Christmas, but we never really discuss what this means to our children. And um, I think that whole piece of it is interesting, how we have these, these older of their time holiday movies and they present lots of problems and, you know, like, a lot of the times the parents who show that to their kids don't talk about it and their kids are like I don't know what this is and then uh, you know that's, that's yeah. it's complicated and shitty and, and it, it sucks that um it's part of this movie but at the same time yeah. like having it be part of this movie should incite a dialogue to make everyone more aware and educated so like if we take advantage of it that way like it's just yeah. it's complicated and shitty and yeah I hear you and it sucks just, like yeah amazing dance number and there yes and it sucks that it's has to do with minstrel shows, which are a very dark and horrible part of our past. Zoe, you make a good point about maybe the fact that it could spur a productive dialogue because I'm I will make a confession the combined sort of minstrel show into Mandy was always one of my favorites as a kid because because of the dancing and I I had no sense of you know the mm-hmm. the dark history or the, or even the meaning of of what a, a minstrel show was but Sarah do you know were most of the songs in this movie were they pre-existing parts of the Irving Berlin catalog that then got peppered into this story yes they were so okay. Irving Berlin it all was founded on his catalog of music. I think the only songs, they did write a couple for this. So like Love You Didn't Do Right By Me was written for this. There, I think there were others that were too. I should have looked that up. But um, they had written a song for Donald O'Connor when he was attached. And when he left, he walked with the song. Um, so there were certain songs that were specifically written for this. But they used a lot of the Irving Berlin catalog. And um, I know that he, when he first came up as a songwriter, so Irving Berlin originally, like his name is Israel. I mean, he's a Jewish dude from Russia that moved to the U.S. when he was five. He was an immigrant. Um, and he got famous for writing Alexander's Ragtime Band, like in the early, what, 19... 19- tens so he was a songwriter for a very long time yeah and wrote during like a racist period of songwriting um when things like blackface and minstrel shows were around so like he does have some things in his back catalog that were like quote unquote appropriate at the time that we are all completely horrified because they are not ever appropriate um but i think that might have been to me that sounded like something he would have written before like that had more of an alexander's ragtime band feel about it so i imagine it was a song that he previously wrote or based on a song he previously wrote. But yeah, that's a really good question that I would like to look further into as well. I actually, I did like a very casual Googling because I was curious about Mandy, like the song Mandy itself. It's like, oh, we used to sing songs like this. And I'm like, is this like genuinely a minstrel show piece? Like I was just kind of curious. And I found something that said it was from an army themed musical review called Yip Yip Yap Hank during World War One, but it was cut from Yip Yip Yap Hank for whatever reason. But for the number, the soldiers in the show dressed in blackface and in drag. Of course oh, they did. Wow. Uh. Okay. Wow. Um, ooh, that's bad. 
really bad. Uh, also, I don't think Mandy is that great of a song in general because what disappointed me as a kid, you're right, Jesse, I'm with you. Like, I didn't know what a minstrel show was. They're singing about it. And I'm like, I don't know what this means. I don't know what this is. Um, but I always hated the song. And I remember being like, there are so many good Irving Berlin songs. Like, why didn't you pick one of those? Yeah, no, the, the lyric of the song is not inspiring. I get so much anxiety still to this day watching her back bend and kicking her legs up so high and doing the splits. I'm like, you're just going to break, girl. You're just going to break. Yeah. You're going to break. So, well, how much they do in one take? So what I forgot to mention earlier about the scene when we were talking about the choreography of the two men, that's all in one take. Like, that's a huge accomplishment to show all of this cool motion, dialogue, all that in one take. Mandy, it's not, it's a lot of long takes. So she's doing these insane things with her body. Like, she's in the splits in the air and they're putting her down on one side and she's one leg on the floor and she's got a split in the air. And then she's doing front walkovers and back walkovers over people, over, th- like, not on the ground, like, on top of people. It, it's so completely impressive. And done in such a wide scope like she is so incredibly talented and then the other thing that i used to think especially watching this was you said her legs i used to think like oh my god how thin they are yeah she was always kind of she's very thin and there's always been talk about like was she anorexic or was she not anorexic some people say no she wasn't that that was just her body and she like also swam and how could she have been anorexic and have the strength to do all these things but then other people are like hmm She clearly was anorexic. And to bring it back to the costumes, we had had this discussion back in the day. I remember hearing the rumor about, um, in this movie, Vera Ellen's costumes are all turtlenecks. They all cover her neck. And um, people had said, like, she's covering her neck because it's gotten loose because she's anorexic. And then, but then there were, we, oh, no. we Googled this so in, like 10 years ago, like a decade ago, we were having this conversation <laughs> and we Googled it and there are pictures of her at the time exposing her neck at the time this film was made. So it might've just been like a costuming choice kind of thing. Or like her signature look yeah. is something that I remember reading about. Like she just liked the look of her in turtleneck. So that was like her signature look kind of thing um but yeah, yeah like you, if you even google it today there's like a camp that says no it, like on our standards she was bulimic or anorexic but there's other people who are like no that's that's a lie or that's like you know vicious rumors or whatever and so it's like you, you like there's two sides of it still to this day i always get a little creeped out in a few of the scenes especially when they're on the train with her yes. cinched waist and you can like see the, her, the ribs sticking out over it. for me that's the most concerning i i actually think in mandy you know she's got muscle on those legs like and you can see that she's strong her waist is frighteningly and then strong. we had talked earlier about like the costuming of her versus rosemary clooney and so yes anyone next to vera ellen is going to look bigger but that's not even my issue with the costuming i just think that like they put Rosemary Clooney in like uglier things than they put Vera Ellen in. Like Vera Ellen's style in this is so cool. And maybe it's because they were making her look maternal. And also the sisters' outfits are really terrible and flattering on no one. That should also be addressed. The bright blue turtleneck lace (laughs) is astonishingly hideous. Oh, and I did want to say, Jesse, I agree with you about Rosemary Clooney's waist. Like, the hourglass thing is beautiful. My issue is not with the front of the dress. It is with the bulky gloves and the back of the dress. I just feel like they always fuck it up a little. Like, she could look amazing, and they're like, nah, let's put this one gross detail in that ruins the whole thing. That's how I feel about her outfits in this. I do agree about the costuming. Uh, you know, I, Vera Ellen always looks fabulous, and she has more glitter. I think, you know, she's got a little more pizzazz in a lot of her 
her costumes, but she, even the casual, like that checkered skirt, which she wears, a few, she wears it more than, more than once, which I totally love that. Like, should we get a repeat of an outfit? I wanted that outfit, like out of the womb. I want to wear that outfit. Like that is my, like the gingham dress with the thing and the red belt of the shoes. The oh. red shoes. Oh, it's such a cute look. I would wear it today. The yellow dress, while it is scary on the train, I do love her yellow dress. I love her white dress that she wears at the party. Recently, I saw someone saying, hey, I want to get married. Does anyone know where I could find this dress? And it was the Vera Ellen white Christmas white dress. And I was <gasps> like, oh shit, it's still timely. Everything she is wearing in this yeah. is pretty much timeless. She looks, <laughs> we're not saying this because she's really thin. We're saying this because the costumer did a great job with her that I feel like they did not do yes. as much. Yeah. The one pitfall, though, of her outfits, yeah, I will yeah. say, is she wore a lot of fluffy panties underneath those short skirts, and that was not a good choice. Wait, what do you mean? No, like, with the muff and, like, the pink outfit, she has the fluffy underwear. Uh-huh. Like, the leotard is, like, ruffled. It's a ruffled panty. And I've always been very, like, it did not sit well with me. <laughs> I think it happens a couple times. I think she has it in the little mini yellow dress in the dance number. I'm pretty sure that's a ruffled bottom as well. And I'm like, ugh. Like, I've, I've always hated it so much. I wonder, was it, was it, like, considered inappropriate to just have, you know, a streamlined leotard look is that is was that too much, other like, dancers have it though they have like the fluffy like button up top with a belt mm-hmm. and with just a leotard on bottom so it's fine for them but for her like a couple times i want to say she had like that that left a panty and i'm like Eesh. I don't Reminds know. Me of a diaper. Yeah. It's a little diaper. It, it's yeah. a little diaper. I'm gonna be honest. Yeah. I didn't yeah. notice. I, I'm <sighs> gonna check it out next time though, because I her she's nerve tapping. I'm not looking at her undies when she's her feet are moving so fast, faster than a heartbeat. Her feet move. It's so impressive. They're like little hummingbird feet. <laughs> um, which is great. Also, that's I want to mention our friend Andrew. When we watch this movie with Andrew, there are two moments that he always points out. One, the, the when she's doing the nerve tapping in choreography, and it's just like her foot moving, like just vibrating. And then the second, after um, Mandy, when they do this whole extravagant number, and it's supposed to be the dress rehearsal, and they've put their hearts into it, and there's all this acrobatics, and it's huge. And then they pan to the audience and it's three people clapping um that's andrew johnson our dear friend's favorite part and i I want to shout out to that because it's great (laughs) so good like every time i watch it it's like this was like a 12 minute insane number like it's so good what a smart device though jesse had tapped on this earlier where you were saying like the way they fit the musical numbers in is really smart because the musical numbers are just spectacle and they have nothing to do with the plot most of the time. So it's cool that they do it through the guise of like, we're putting on a show. Watch this dress rehearsal for this number that's going to be in the show. Look how cool it is. So it's like really fun to watch, but it doesn't like mess up the flow of the movie and it doesn't get us confused about the plot of the movie. It keeps you know? it moving too. I mean, yeah. without, I mean, it's very, they're very, I think they're very strategically placed because right when it's like, it's pretty plot heavy. It gets a little complicated. Like Ben Crosby's gonna make it yet another call to New York, and you're like, okay. And then we have like the yellow dress number, and you're like, all right, this is great. Wait, can I also bring up that number is Abraham that they're dancing to, which in Holiday Inn, that number is featured in Holiday Inn, and that's the racist number. That's the blackface number it in is? Holiday Inn is Abraham, <sighs> and so when they do it in this, and it's like. 
first of all, an incredible dance. And I think what's so fun about Vera Ellen watching her dance is you see her joy. Like she just looks like a kid having fun when she is dancing in this number. And that's why it's so great to watch. They just look like they're having the best time and they're like both on their game. Like they're so professional, but they're having so much fun. This is a much better version of that. Like the blackface is horrible and awful and wrong and this is like a beautiful dance number um she yeah vera ellen is the most natural and joyous in that number and i do want to add too about the part with uh the best things happen while you're dancing i love that throughout that number she's somehow flirting to someone off camera like it's like she's got her face focused on a person that's off camera and she's flirting with that person (laughs) so hard and that has always been one of my favorite things about that number is like the way they stage that. I'm like, it's so ridiculous and great. But I did want to say about the Abraham number, I love that number and that's one that I don't think I really noticed as much when I was younger, but now it is one of my favorites because she is just is just such a joy to watch in it. Do you, I wonder if that was sort of given to her as like her solo moment, like Rosemary Clooney's solo moment comes around the same time in in the show. And that's the love Mm -hmm. you didn't do right by me song. And this is the only dance number where none of the other three characters are, are in it. Um, You know, they, they like, brought the good male dancer in because he was the only one who could keep pace with her but that's Vance kind of... <laughs> that's what they call him in the movie Vance oh, the yeah choreography by Vance choreography by Vance yeah. um, <laughs> but it is like that part is just all her and I like that about it too it's like pure dance it's like a pure dance number there's not a lot of spectacle there's not a huge backdrop there's not a million the costumes aren't insane. The set isn't insane. It's just yeah. her. And no you're like, vocals. you're just amazing. Everyone gets their moment. So you're right. Bing Crosby has White Christmas. Danny Kaye has choreography. Because even though she's in it, he's like, it's his story. Mm-hmm. Um, Rosemary Clooney gets Love You Didn't Do Right By Me. So I had never thought of it this way, that that's like her solo moment. And every single character gets one. Thank you for pointing that out. And you're right, it does pick up the story because we get in a little bit of a, I don't want to say a lull because I do love this movie, but when things start to get a little tense or a little slow, they pop Abraham in and you're like, I'm back. I'm in it again. Yeah. I do want to kind of get into the backstory of some of these people and like how that shapes things. So I had mentioned earlier, I mean, this is Bing Crosby's movie in terms of like he was the biggest star and people wanted to do this movie to work with him. Um, I guess he was delightful to work with, but if you had said like, hey, Sarah, what do you know about Bing Crosby? I'd be like, okay, I know he was an alcoholic and abused his kids. Like if you were like off the cuff, what are some things you know? So I researched it and it actually wasn't, it was different than I thought. So (laughs) Bing Crosby's stuff is that yes, he was an alcoholic, but then I guess he got a handle on his alcoholism when he was younger because it was affecting his career. Um, He actually just started to like smoke more pot and that was fine. So that wasn't actually his issue later on. His issue ended up being that he was addicted to gambling. He was in major debt and he was like in with the mafia and he like owed them a ton of money and Frank Sinatra would like have to step in and pay sometimes. Um, Yeah, like he was in deep with the mafia. He loved to golf and the people were like his two addictions were gambling and golfing. (laughs) And (laughs) he died on the golf course. Um, But part of his golf course buddies were like people in the mafia. I forget their names, but they had like mafia names, like Lucky and Bugs. And then apparently the whole child abuse thing, one of the kids wrote like a tell-all book about his behavior. And it was like, like corporal punishment things. So it was like, you know, you'd get beaten with the belt if you did something bad. You were like verbally abused a lot. 
one of the other Crosby kids was like, honestly, to me, it wasn't so much like abuse. Like they kind of treated it like that was how my dad was raised. So that was what he did. And it was like more acceptable back then kind of a framing. So it's like a weird situation of like, that is abusive behavior 100%. But like, I think he thought he was doing like being a strict parent. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, Cause it was like spanking with a belt. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like not Aww. great, not okay. But I think like, I don't know. I think it's that area of like, that's how people did it back then and it's not okay and we don't want to do that today. But like, that was the vibe behind it. That was the discipline, yeah. the dis yeah. disciplinary measure of the time. Right. Yeah. Which again, isn't great. I no. want to stress that. I don't want to like make light of anyone's abuse. Where in the arc of Bing Crosby's career does this movie fall? I mean, I know he's at, I think at the peak of his fame, but is this late in his life? I don't, I don't know when he died. This is a great question. Thank you for bringing it up. So, Bing Crosby comes to fame on the radio. He's known for his voice, um, gets radio programs, is known for that, is put in movies like in the 30s, like early 30s-ish. He wins an Academy Award in 1944 for Going My Way, and that kind of cements him as like a film star status, and he ends up playing that role of Father O'Malley several times. Around this time, this is like the peak of his dramatic career because he does a bunch of really good films so like the same year as this he does the country girl with grace kelly which ends up she wins the oscar for that and it's like lauded as this really like uh well-revered film he does high society after this to me his career starts to kind of dwindle after that um high society i want to say that's like 1956 i feel like his career starts to go down after that so this is like the height but about to be kind of over for his career mm -hmm. um he does those uh there's these movies that kind of propelled him into fame they're the road to movies that he does with bob hope so it's like road to utopia road to zanzibar he does all these like road buddy comedy movies from 1940 to 1960 like it might be longer than that 1962 but the, those are kind of what propel his career and what he does throughout his career. But like the height of his really like epic career is kind of these are the last couple years of his really solid movie making before he starts to decline a bit. And I would say his heyday is probably like, I mean, he does Holiday Inn in 1942. I feel like that's a big hit. And he kind of has hits throughout. Like he, he does The Bells of St. Mary's after Going My Way and Blue Skies he does. So yeah, he's got a lot of hits in there. And this is like towards the end of his prestigious part of his career. Is the Blue Skies in the White in White Christmas because it was one of his hit songs? Yeah, yeah, yes, it is. Yeah. I get that because um, White Christmas. I mean, that was already in Holiday Inn, uh, right? Right. We have Blue Skies, Tropical Heat Wave, the Tropical Heat yeah. Wave. Yeah, yeah. That's what uh, his too. I didn't realize that. Yep. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, the whole movie is Irving Berlin songs, and a lot of them are from like a previously seen and used catalog that if you were watching at the time you'd be like oh what a topical reference or like oh that just brings me back to one of my favorite references in the show when they they're like you wanted to be a rogers and hammerstein and i was like oh my god at the time that was like a timely reference that yeah. would be like today if we were like lin-manuel miranda he's on broadway that it's like that era of reference isn't yeah. that crazy yeah. yeah um i know so that's his story i mean we kind of touched on rosemary clooney mainly a singer didn't do a lot of movies um, she was part of Sister Act, and her sister was named Betty, and then Aww. she went solo and made it big, so look at that. Um, and then we get Danny Kaye, who, again, the other rumor about him, so we have Danny Kaye, lovely, wonderful man, 
Um, does a lot of like goofy movies, like the kid from Brooklyn. He's got this whole thing cornered. He has a radio show. Um, he was married to the same woman his whole life, pretty much. But that leads us to his rumor about one of Lawrence Olivier's biographer wrote that Lawrence Olivier and Danny Kaye had like a secret affair for ten years. Whoa! But there's no substantiated evidence. But everyone's <laughs> always wondered about this. I think whenever I've watched it, I've always, well, not at the beginning, but when I got older, I was like, oh, he might be gay. And that's like good for him. Like, I just wish he could be out if he wants to be out. But yeah, what do you guys think of that? <laughs> <laughs> I was curious before I knew we were going to talk about it. Just from curiosity, I, I did some light Googling. And I guess this is kind of like an enigma to this day. Everyone's like, well, I don't know. He was like insanely private. He hated giving autographs. He hated giving interviews. You know, and there can be multiple reasons for that, I guess. This is all news to me. And I had never really drawn any conclusions from from watching the movie. But is it common knowledge that Lawrence Olivier was gay? Because he was married to Joan Plow, right? And Vivian Lee. So I did that. That's sort of news to me as well. Well, I think it was like a bisexual kind of oh, thing. Okay. Mm-hmm. So like, I think a lot of stars were pretty open. Like, I think they would kind of be now what we would be like pansexual or like they wouldn't want to put a label on it. Like... People were pretty open about stuff, like not with the public, but like, I think like Barbara Stanwyck we talked about last week, she was sexually fluid. Like she liked women, she liked men. Mm -hmm. That was totally fine. And I think with Danny Kaye, you're right, we'll never totally know. And I think part of the reason there are questionings about it is because he played effeminate characters so well. And he's so good in the drag part in this. And like when Vera Ellen comes on to him strong, they play it off like it's about commitment, but also it could be played off as like, well, I'm gay. Like, I don't want to be with you because you're a woman and I am into men. So I'm just saying. Also in that moment, he said, so Danny Kaye like just wanted to impress Bing Crosby in general. Like he just wanted to make him laugh at all times. And that was a genuine moment of him making Bing Crosby laugh. And I love that. And you can tell that that Bing Crosby (laughs) is laughing like for real at the end of that number. I love it. But anyway, it doesn't matter what Danny Kaye's orientation is. I just want to put that out there. Like, again, you are loved as you are. But I do wish if he was gay that he could have been out if he wanted to be. Oh, yeah. That's kind of like. That's always a tragedy. One thing that we haven't talked about that I want to bring up is the director, Michael Curtiz, who's like a freaking Hollywood god. And it is incredible that he did this movie. If I say Michael Curtiz, do you guys know who that is just off the bat? When I tell no. you who he is. I never know direct. I'm not very good with names of that period. Michael Curtiz directed Casa Frickin' Blanca. He's the director of Casa Blanca. That little oh. number. He's like a master of all genres. Ironically enough, his movie career did peter off after this film. <laughs> I mean, the you reviews, know. the reviews of this movie when it came out weren't that great, right? Yeah. So it was kind of deemed as like stupid fluff, but it was the highest grossing film of that year oh so it did well yeah it did really well remember how i was referring to that list earlier of like things you didn't know about white christmas one of the things on the list is like it wasn't a hit at the time and i'm like that is lies um it might have been critically panned but it made so much money it was the highest grossing film of that year yeah it's really fun and it's a delight like it's everyone can enjoy it except for people well oh shit everyone can enjoy it except for like people of color who have to sit through that fucking minstrel show number and be like this is racist which is a tragedy oh and i again we're gonna go back to michael curtis but as always i did want to point out like there are no people of color in this film there's one scene with like one person is a black man he's a waiter and he is like serving them their snow Mm -hmm. beverages no no lines Um, i think he Mm-mm. has he does have a line but it's very quiet it's oh. like whispered almost like you can't hear 
at least we don't have that horrible like holiday in terrible uh-huh. yeah. character accent thing going on so at least we don't have that but it's also not like representative of anyone else besides like straight white people so i just want to put that out there but uh we were getting into the director michael curtis curtis <laughs> said it weird so here's the thing Michael Curtis, I almost want to say Michael Curtis, because his biographer, I heard him speak a few years ago, and he was like, okay, so Michael Curtis pronounced his name Curtis, but that's bullshit because (laughs) he made up his name. He was Hungarian, and he had like a Hungarian name, and when he came to Hollywood, he picked that, but he's like, technically, it would have been pronounced Curtis, so I'm saying Curtis, and I'm like, yes, but he should be allowed to choose how he wants people to say his name, so if he said Curtis, then I want to say Curtis. But now I get confused in my head because, you know, when people give you two options, you're like, oh, crap, which, one? which was the correct option? You know one of them is wrong, but you can't remember which one, and then you're distressed yeah. all the time. Yeah. Yes, and I judged the biographer when he first spoke, and he was like, Michael Curtis, the director. And I was like, oh, my God, you're the biographer, and you can't even say his name right? And then he was like, you'll notice I have said his name, Curtis, and then he explained why he <laughs> said it that way. And I was just like, oh, okay. But now I'm like, so do I be pretentious and do what the biographer did? Or do I do what Michael Curtis, who chose his own name, <laughs> wanted us to say? I'm going to go with what he wanted us to say. Okay, so Michael Curtis, dude directed so many epic films, it's actually bananas. He directed Casablanca. He directed The Adventures of Robin Hood. Like, he did all the big Errol Flynn squashbuckling ones. So, like, Captain Blood. I'm not up on my Flynn movies. Casablanca, I'm familiar with. I, I got, got that. I got that one. <laughs> he directed The Sea Wolf, which is, like... I could tell you guys don't like it or know it, and that's fine. Um, (laughs) He directed Mildred Pierce. He directed Yankee Doodle Dandy. He directed Romance on the High Seas with Doris Day, her premiere film. He directed King Creole with Elvis Presley. He directed Four Daughters, which featured John Garfield. Like, he had all these genres under his belt. He covered the freaking gambit. And then he goes and does White Christmas. This is a really great movie musical. So, like, Michael Gertiz, you're doing great. He was Hungarian, and he made 64 films before coming to Hollywood. So he had already, like, mastered his craft before coming here. Also, he was he was a Hungarian Jewish person. So again, with a lot of these people, I'm really glad he got out before the Holocaust because yeah. that's a lot of a lot of directors in Hollywood were Jewish people from Germany and Hungary because they were doing all the German expressionism film stuff out there, and they came to Hollywood, and thank God they did. <laughs> so anyway, uh, he was influenced by German expressionism. Was really cool with camera angles, etc., lighting, all that stuff that we learned about German expressionism. Go listen to our M podcast if you want to learn about that. He didn't speak the language when he came here. He like did not speak English. And they were going to have him direct a film right away and he couldn't understand what was in the script. Random fun fact, I've heard Hungarian is the hardest language for a native English speaker to learn of all the languages. And I wonder if that means English would be difficult for a Hungarian speaker, particularly difficult. I think it related to if you are in the foreign the foreign service and you have a posting abroad that will require use of a foreign language, you're given intensive language training before you go. And I think I heard that the Hungarian training was the longest. So I bet going from Hungarian to English is tough too. So all I was saying was that when Michael Curtis came to the US, he spoke zero English and was put to work like right away. Like Warner Brothers was like, make a movie now. And he was like, I don't speak English. So um, he was doing a film about prison. And what he said was like, through an interpreter, I'm guessing, um, just like 
I want to live in the prison for a week and I'll understand everything if I'm there. So he was always very known for like submersing himself in the topic. So he would do copious amounts of research about what it would feel like to be in whatever situation he was directing. And so they were like, how did you get past the language barrier? And he was like, look, this is his quote. Human beings are the same all over the world. Human emotions are international. And so he ended up being like, yeah, you have to learn about cultures, but like human beings are all the same. If I can understand the human moment that's happening there, I can tell that and I don't necessarily need language to do that. And I was like, oh, damn, Michael Curtiz, look at you. That's cool. I would like to um, push back just a little bit on the notion that this is a completely light and fluffy movie. I think this was the first viewing where I really felt this, but... I'm beginning to see this movie as like General Waverly's story and him as kind of in in some ways the heart of the movie. Like he is there at the very beginning. He is the impetus for this, this kind it's Christmas Eve, but they also want to put a show on for him to honor him as he, as he is being demoted. Um, And then, you know, we come upon him a couple years later and the story becomes about, you know, how that these entertainers are going to devise a plan to save him from financial ruin, but also just to show him how loved and respected he is and just demonstrate that he has like left a legacy of a, of a successful military career behind him. And I think it is so emotional when all of the, you know, everyone from the battalion or were they in an airborne? I don't know. I love that we're all like, we don't know but what to call they, this. Like the regiment, the battalion, the <laughs> army. Not my expertise. <laughs> Yeah, they all come back to honor him and on Christmas. And there, Bing Crosby has a line when he is on the Ed Harrison show making a pitch about how it's you know no bargain. So I got the sense that these guys were like paying their own way, and it's that's like a, a big sacrifice and a big statement. And it just like it makes me cry. <laughs> um, and it shows you know it shows that he is that he is appreciated and his career and life have had meaning. I find that nice a good christmas message uh, i'm really glad you brought that up because it's true he is the heart of the show the heartbeat of the show and what drives the show and by show i mean movie (laughs) Um, but yes you're right and i think this show is actually really depressing for him because it's his constant downfall because it's like nothing but demotions for him throughout the film because it's like yeah we start off and we see what a good job he's done and it's just like demotion 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 until he's like running his own in that's failing yeah and i feel like that's the song what do you do with a general when he stops being a general someone who has this very specific skill set it's like in the hurt locker when jeremy renner's character goes back to civilian life and can't function because he's like i defuse bombs that's what i do i don't know how to like be in a grocery store and pick out cereal like I don't know how to live this life so it's kind of it has this idea of like someone who has this skill set and loves doing their job what do you do when that job isn't a job anymore how do you just go back to reality oh it's like the the best years of our lives tackles this too you're right it's a very deep topic and the fact that they can turn it around and turn it into a positive thing for me because Again, the demotions over the last 10 years, essentially, in the end, he does get a boost up and he gets a boost up by his community and people that care. So it's almost like do what you can as a people, as a community to help the people around you who need lifting up. With the general, you're you're right. There are a lot of pretty depressing little moments throughout where we see him kind of slip into irrelevance or obscurity. You know, he's like handed the bag of groceries to you know, he's on KP and then you see him 
You see him being a waiter. The letter scene just like tore me apart. The game of horseshoes, is, it's very sad. So it's just, it's very uplifting to see him celebrated and honored at, at the end. They show us him giving up too, because that horseshoe scene. So what we're talking about is like, there's men that play horseshoe somehow on his property that are older. I don't really understand why they're there playing horseshoe and all yeah. this, but it's implied that when you've given up on life, you play horseshoe that game, which just, he's like, how do you play? And it seems pretty obvious. You just throw the horseshoe and it should land on the peg. Am I wrong about this? Whatever. I'm not a general. No. Maybe it's more complicated. I think that you're right, but I actually think it's pretty hard or I have very poor hand eye coordination. Um, but yeah, you have to, right. You have to get the horseshoe around the I'm peg. not saying the skill is necessarily hard. I'm just saying like, he's like, how do you play? And I'm like, I think it's pretty obvious <laughs> how you play. The rules. <laughs> Maybe I'm wrong. Um, but that scene, uh, the other thing I've always noticed, about, always meaning in recent years, is that he has given up on the inn much sooner than we thought because he, he wants to be posted again as a general. I think the reason he took the inn is he wants to be in control of large groups of people. He likes to have order mm-hmm. and likes to like, this is what we're doing and this is how we can achieve the best in, in this case, it would be like the victory, but in the end, it's like, this is how we can achieve the optimal best time. <laughs> like, So I think when he's doing things like being the waiter, that's still kind of a part of being a general. So it looks like he's been demoted, but it's like part of this job of like, I know that I can bring large groups of people together and to do wonderful things together. So I don't think it's like the worst job for him, but he gives up on the end because he writes to the government telling them he wants to be a general again and genuinely believes that this is going to happen. And when the news comes that like, no, we don't want you. Stay where you are, you lucky SOB. He's like, well, I guess horseshoe isn't that hard to learn. And we're all like, oh, Oh, no. (laughs) So I love that they can make this dream a possibility for him. And that, yeah, the the celebration of veterans and what veterans can do for each other is great. But then I also want to add, like, it's a layer of community, too. Like, what a community can do for each other is really beautiful. Especially at Christmas. Uh, what else do we need to talk about? I mean, are there any moments that are just your favorites? One that I wrote down in my notebook personally, when Danny Kay has his yellow mittens on and he gives that cute mitten salute and it like melts down his face. I love that so much. Sarah, I swear I was going to say the exact same moment. Um, right before he says, a, ja- a janitor. Um, yeah, it's the best little visual of the melting mitten. He's such a good yeah. physical actor. Totally That's completely another thing I forgot to mention about Danny Kaye. Like Danny Kaye was like pseudo comedian. Like he rose his way up in the show business by doing like the Borscht Belt. Like the, you know in Miss Maisel when they go to their like Jewish summer retreat? Yeah, yeah. Danny yeah. Kaye was like one of those performers there. So he did like variety acts and like comedy. And he was famous for doing patter songs, like comedic patter songs. Um, so he's so good at those physical comedy moments, like in general and choreography his movements, his face, and then that mitten thing. It's just an extra thing that Danny Kay added that's so adorable and brilliant. I love it. That, and then when the duck is dying, he does that. He does this, <laughs> like a duck that is dying. I'm like, oh, Danny Kay. <laughs> He's so that. funny. Yeah, that, and I love when, um, when Bing Crosby says, you could have been stuck with this weird mobile for life. <laughs> and then she <laughs> cries. I didn't love that they made her break down and cry because she's so tough otherwise. I like to think it's because it's her sister and that's her weak point. That's why I like justify it to myself. She's a tough broad. She knows like show business. She gets what she wants. But like, I think she felt sad because she loves her sister. So she's not crying about having to marry Danny Kay. She's crying about like, oh shit, I love my sister and this all got messed up. 
Yeah. Oh, and also, yeah. she's super manipulative, so we'll never know if it That's was all just a manipulation. <laughs> but she's definitely not crying about having to marry Danny Kay because she she orchestrated that whole thing from the first minute she laid eyes on him. To be clear, both her and Rosemary Clooney did because, as you'll notice in Sisters, when they're doing their fan dance and their fans are over their head and all of a sudden in the music there's a quiet point where they're staring at the men, mm-hmm. they each picked each other. If anybody else on. in the audience would see that... The music's going, no one's singing. They're not really dancing, standing there, googly eyes. <laughs> yeah. For like a good like 10 seconds and the song, and then they exit. Well, and that's, I mean, one of the bloopers in this movie is that their version of Sisters is different from Danny Kay and Bing Crosby's version of Sisters on the record. Yeah. We get extra right. noises. The, it's tighter together. <laughs> there's not that weird moment. Yeah. The ending is different. So yeah, there's bloopers there. Although, let's be real, the Bing Crosby moment when he does that with Danny Kay is another one of my favorite moments of the film. Yes. Them doing Sisters. It's just so much fun. Oh. You see the fun they're having together. We love a good cross-dressing moment. Yes, be gender fluid. Um, and don't be so judgy about it. I do like that Danny Kay is way less judgy about it on the train. When Bing Crosby's like, what'd you do? Leave it in your snood? And Danny Kay's just like, oh, I must have left it in my whatever like, he says. His girdle. Yeah. His girdle. So, yeah. Do you think, were, were they in this film supposed to be famous enough that the audience at that club would recognize them? Or would they just I be like, who so. are these Who are these weirdos who like <laughs> put on a sash and are lip syncing? They are famous because okay. they have a radio program and stuff. Okay. And their show, was, their show ran on Broadway. Their show playing around ran on Broadway for two years. And at the end of the show, they have the gall to say, hey, check out our new musical Playing Around. And I'm like, bitch, we have seen Playing Around the entire show. <laughs> it ran on Broadway for two years and was touring. Do not pretend like this is a new musical. Thank you very much. Exactly. Another blooper. But so we're we're to understand that the audience in like they knew that they were in for a treat. They knew right. they knew yeah. who those people were. It made sense for them. I think it would be like if George Clooney and Brad Pitt, if we were sitting there and they showed right. up and did like a silly act for us. I mean, it's not the same. They're not like the same sexually sassy. Let's change that. That would be like if um, like Lin-Manuel Miranda and Jimmy Fallon or something. I don't know. If like they showed up in front of you, you'd be like, oh, I know who these people are and they're doing right. something silly. Yeah. yeah. Because if they yeah, weren't yes. famous enough, I'm, I'm like, all right, first of all, weird. We, just, we just heard this song. Second of all, they're not that good. <laughs> and they're, it's not even their actual voices. So no. I'm glad to know that they were celebrity enough that the audience would have legitimately enjoyed that. Yeah. <laughs> so I feel bad for Rosemary Clooney in that song because she plays the sad sister because there's she, the other yes. sister gets to wear the dress and she stays home. Of and course. I'm like, already they're setting us up for like that she's the maternal one. They really oh, do Clooney. like stack all of the cards against her. Right? Like they don't dress yeah. her as well. She doesn't have, <laughs> she's not sassy. Doesn't communicate well. No. <laughs> but but she's worst. got a very strong moral compass. Yeah, well, that yeah. gets her far. Blech. I don't know that I agree with her moral compass i'm just saying it's very strong <laughs> and it seems to align with bing crosby's another one of like the quote-unquote fun facts is the picture so the reason that the two men go to see the sisters is because their friend from the army wrote to them and told them to go like hey would you mind checking out my sisters they're in a sister act in the same town you're in right now and it's benny haynes is the name of this brother and the the picture that they show if we were an audience at the time we would have laughed because it's a grown-up alfalfa the actor that played alfalfa oh. in like the our gang little rascals era that's a picture of him so you would have seen that as an audience member and gone ha, 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 ha. like their brother's alfalfa what a that door. makes so much sense i've always been so confused with that moment because i feel like there's something i'm missing because i look at that picture and i'm like he's cute he doesn't yeah, look like a dog mate. like yes. i want to date with him 
It's pretty cute. It's fine. Yeah. Because it's his, alfalfa. Yeah. His nickname was Freckleface Haynes, the dog face boy. And I always, yeah, Zoe, no, I, I totally agree because I always thought they were zooming in on, they, you know, they paused there and I thought we were supposed to, to like be horrified by how ugly he was. But he's, he's not. But he, no. ah, he's a child star. Yeah, grown so up it's just like the okay. joke that you would have gotten at the time and be like oh i get that that like that now we don't get it gives me so much joy to, to understand that moment now because i've always yeah. been annoyed by it i feel like there was something i'm missing that's why we have this podcast man <laughs> just for those moments oh lovely i do want to make sure also we get to one of my other favorite moments oh and i do want to call it another blooper that I, has bothered me for years as well when vera ellen is pouring the cups of coffee she pours the cups of coffee puts everything down and then then in the next shot she's holding the coffee again and i'm like no continuity <laughs> error no. that's just bothered me i want like to nails on chalkboard like no. yeah um <laughs> anyway another one of my most favorite moments in the whole movie is snow i love that yeah. song i didn't like it as a kid because the discordantness kind of bothered me but now i love it um it's like so funny because they're not really doing anything they're sitting at a booth i just love the coziness of that so they're like on this train in the dining car singing about snow making a christmas village with the ornaments around them we all have discussed how it stresses us out that rosemary clooney's lyric is i'll wash my hair with snow because right? no one in their hair right hair face and hands and hair no. I'm like no girl it's gonna freeze no yeah, one wins. They should have changed those lyrics. Let's just be real about that. <laughs> and she says it like twice. She like leans into it. And I'm like, you really shouldn't do that, my friend. Because <laughs> originally this song was not called Snow. This song was called Free. And it was supposed to be in Call Me Madam, the musical. And it didn't work. So they cut it. And so when they were doing stuff for this, Irving Berlin was like, hey, I got a song. Let's switch it up a bit. And he's a man, so he's not bright. So he thinks that women wash their face and hands and hair with snow. Yeah. Um, I think. That song is fabulous. You know, there's so much, like, so many big, sparkly numbers. And I love them. I love the dance numbers. But this is just, you know, a quiet little ensemble song, which I it's love. So catchy. I have never liked, though, Count Your Blessings. No, oh, neither have I. That's like fast forward. Forward. And it's Kyle Cirilla's like favorite song, I think I want to say. Or he, I know it maybe it's not his favorite, but he loves it. Because we've really? discussed this because I've had this conversation with him where it's like, I don't like it. And he's like, but Sarah, it's so like the way they have the double entendre of like counting your blessings of phrase and, and then you're actually literally counting them, you know. Um, but it is kind of a snooze fest. But what makes it good is they make it homey and cozy. So instead of listening to their snooze fest song, you're like, oh, look at the cool fire indoors. How did you do that? Ooh, I want to eat those sandwiches. As much as a general does not have the best business sense, or maybe he's just really unlucky because there's no snow, the world may never know. But <laughs> I will say how he redesigned his inn, mwah, beautiful job. Your interior designer and architect need like a little clappy clap because I would love to stay there. It is amazing. I want to go roast marshmallows and Danny Kay roasted a hot dog on it. Like it's just beautiful. Yeah. That indoor fireplace. Yes. I want that in my life. But also the general's interruption of their kiss in that scene, like man, just turn around and walk away. He, he like announces his presence so loudly and awkwardly and it's just like it's it's hilarious well he also is awkward after danny k announces his proposal to to vera ellen because he's like are you gonna kiss her i did think it was a little strange when he announced the engagement and then they hugged he needed to be pushed to to kiss her but that's fair you know. 
But the kiss was when I think he really fell in love with her. I think that second kiss when he was like, oh, damn, you can smooch good. And she's like, I know I'm Vera Ellen. I feel like that was the moment he fell in love with her. Yeah. Um, and I also feel like it was almost Hallmarky because you know how in Hallmark movies they can't, not always, sometimes the rules don't apply, but they don't usually get to kiss till the end. You're like waiting on the kiss. So I wonder if they're trying to like build our anticipation for their eventual smooch. Or in the suspense of like, will they, won't they? Yeah. They will. They did. Also, all of their ex-girlfriends are there. I was thinking about that last night where I was like, oh shit, Danny Kay did some quick gymnastics of like, hey, I'm dating Rita. Just kidding. Five days later, I'm engaged to Vera Ellen. Suck it, Rita. Rita. Rita was in the show. Did he have that like breakup talk with her? Off camera, I suppose. <laughs> Maybe they were pretty open about dating other mm. people. We don't know. I feel like Danny Kay was like casual when he was dating. Like he wasn't committing to anybody. He was like very relationship phobic. Side note, something I noticed a lot on this particular viewing were the color schemes. So I noticed like they would do the matching colors. So like Danny Kay and Vera Ellen would like sometimes wear yellow together. I saw and that then too. in the scene where they're um, trying to set them back up. They were both wearing blue pajamas and then Betty's wearing red pajamas and Bing Crosby was wearing red socks. And I was like, oh my God, they're trying oh. to tie all the colors. Like if you're a couple, you're gonna wear the same colors. I saw the yellow. Cause yellow is fun and they are fun. Okay, I'm trying to think if there's anything else. Oh, one other thing I did want to say about the snow scene is my very favorite moment in the snow scene that I wait for the whole time is when Danny K starts bouncing and he goes, I love that part so much. Oh my God, I just wait for it. And then it happens and I go, yay, viewers at home. And that happens, get into it. One of my favorite things is in the beginning when they do like the pan back, you know, and then they're in a war zone or whatever. You know, the reveal, I'm like, where did they get that backdrop? Where'd they get that bass drum? Where'd they get that giant, like, like a giant music box? Did you notice you're in ruins? Like, they have better set and more resources than most high school theater programs that I know. And they're in the middle of a war zone. Zoe, you're 100% accurate. I was thinking about that yesterday, too. And I just figured out how they did it. So they're clearly in a war zone. I think, if you'll notice, the primary colors in that painting were um, a blue, a red, and a, like, grayish, brownish, blackish color. And it was clearly done. They have an artist in their company, and they used the soil, the berries, and I don't know what the hell they used to make it blue. But I'm pretty sure that's how they did that. They just found some some paper and tarp from the wreckage, and and a very skilled war artist did those things, <laughs> and they they stole those other things from the village. They pillaged <laughs> the village they were in. Took them. <laughs> they have a very um, like artistic battalion. Like they remember they remember their choreography from like a bazillion years ago with the reunion with no rehearsal. They did say, I think that Emma, the housekeeper at one point says that there were 15,000 men under his command. So, you know. Ooh, correct. 20 or 30 who are artistically inclined. How could we forget to talk about Emma, a.k.a. Mary Wicks, oh. who is just a comedic delight. Yeah. So you will know her audience at home from everything ever. <laughs> but she's just like classic comedic character actor, and she is so much fun. She's the reason Rosemary's character goes awry, because she gives her false information as a meddling housekeeper. But I love the sass. Anytime there's a sassy woman sticking it to the man, holding shit together, I'm going to love that. And that's what she she does. The scene where she kisses her. both Danny Kay and Bing Crosby is also a great comedic moment as well. When yeah. it's easy. she's old, it's supposed to be gross, but Bing Crosby's like, damn, that was great. Come back. I want to smooch with you. And also how how old was she? Like 35? I'm sh- I'm sure 
she was younger than Bing Crosby. Oh, for sure. Oh, for sure. Oh my God. Yeah. Also in my research for this, which I don't know how I had not stumbled across this before. Did you know that Bing Crosby dated Grace Kelly? How disgusting <gasps> is that? Whoa. You are Grace Kelly. You can do better. But yeah, Mary Wicks might have been a more suitable choice for Bing Crosby. I always kind of wondered about her in the general though, because clearly the general has this past of like, he has a wife that died and children that probably died too, because he's just raising his granddaughter. Yeah, where are her parents? It's kind of sad. I was thinking that maybe she, you know, was 18 or something and had left home and was working at the inn. Not that she had suffered some unspeakable tragedy in which her parents died. Because the parents would be there if it was Christmas, if they were alive. Exactly. And there wasn't a pandemic. And I think she looked so young to me this time. Like when I was younger, I thought she looked a lot older. But watching it this time, I was like, are you 15? Like, how old are you? I think she's 14, 15. She's young. If she was older, they would have been Crosby hit on her. Very true. Um, I did want to point out too, what I noticed this time is when they start the movie, we pull back and we see like, it, it's not a snowy town like you think it is. We're really in a war zone. But we have Bing Crosby dancing and he's not a great dancer. And then we have Danny Kaye dancing. And it's because the first song has to be White Christmas, but you can't start with White Christmas. It has to be meaningful. So they have to show us like, there's performers. It's a show. Look where we are. They're like setting the scene. And I always feel so bad for Bing Crosby when he has to do that crappy like tap dance that he can't do very well. But then they do make the moment really big and beautiful when they pan in for White Christmas. And this time what I noticed was that when um, Danny Kaye is responsible for winding up that little like music box and he gets so enthralled in Bing Crosby's performance, he does it. He like can't do it in time. And I'd never understood that before because I'd always just thought like, oh, the music isn't right. He's fixing it. But I was like, no, he was so entranced by Bing Crosby's performance that he forgot to do his job, which is beautiful. But yeah, I did want to note that of like, they have to really set the scene for White Christmas and make it like a meaningful, beautiful moment and you couldn't start the film that way and I also want to point out Bing Crosby's uncomfortable dancing ties in with Rosemary Clooney's uncomfortable dancing I get so uncomfortable for her and I you can see the hate in her face when they're doing that the army dance and she has to march on stage (laughs) she looks pissed she's like I hate this movement I don't want to do this like you can just see it all over her face anytime they make her move or do anything and it's again why they're all perfect couples because Bing Crosby and Rosemary Clooney clearly are great singers who hate dancing and Danny Kaye and Vera Ellen are both lovely dancers and Danny Kaye is so graceful also want to point that out he has beautiful balletic hands and fingers and he is a very graceful man I watched an interview with Rosemary Clooney in my special edition DVD version of this movie and she commented about the dancing and how it was she she always felt it was unfair because nobody could dance for you know dub the dancing yeah. for Rosemary Clooney and she was always so self-conscious about it <laughs> yeah when she pulls it off mainly like you can tell she's confident because yeah. those two girls are getting thrown in they go from the little leagues to big time real fast uh-huh. yeah. and so when she is singing she looks like she's got it completely covered but you're right we can see her insecurity with the dancing and I would feel the same if I was dancing next to Vera Ellen I'd be like oh shit because you're right they can't dub that dancing one other thing I wanted to bring up in general about this movie that just makes me laugh is um when Phil Davis and Bob Wallace first team up we're expected to believe that Variety you know the newspaper has reported that these two completely not famous actors are being reported on they show their rise through montages and I love the montages but they're like Phil Davis and Wallace to team and I'm like neither one of them are super famous at this point why are they on the front page of Variety and then the second headline they they bash the biz and bigger bistros or something like that that's always killed me that's yeah, how I, they show us. I noticed that too, and I was wondering if bigger bistros was code for 
yourself, you know, like, is that, is that like the Apollo of the, of the 1940s? Was that like a venue where they were crushing it or are they just like doing dinner acts? Your beast was incorporated as a chain all throughout (laughs) Vegas. Right. This is so silly. And then Emma's reading Variety later. And I was like, are these just plugs for Variety? Do you just want like Variety to really like this movie and get a good review? There's so many things to notice about this movie. You can't ever stop noticing things. It's just such, it's the delight and gem that is this film. Yes. I also want to make sure I say about like Vera Ellen stuff. So she's an incredible dancer, not just in this, but in several films. Um, I don't know if we talked about her kind of tragic. I'm just realizing we didn't talk about it, about how um, she became a recluse after she had a baby in her early 40s and it died of SIDS at three months. So she became a recluse after that. And I know she retired a little bit after this film, just because, I mean, when you're a dancer, I don't think you can dance forever. Um, But that's like her kind of really tragic story that kind of broke her heart for the rest of her life. Um, But I do want to say she is excellent and she's in so many great movies. Um, Some of the movies that you can check her out in are On the Town, Three Little Words, Words and Music, and Call Me Madam. So if you're like, oh, I really want more Vera Ellen, she's epic and impeccable. Um, Check out those movies for her. And Danny Kaye's movies, if you want to check out more from him, it's The Kid from Brooklyn, The Secret Life of Walter Mitty, not the Ben Stiller one, the original, um, The Inspector General, and Hans Christian Andersen are some of his, like, notable films. Also, fun fact about me, when I was little, I thought that he was Donald O'Connor. I thought they were the same person. Because I saw Singing in the Rain, mm-hmm. and I thought that he that they were one person. I did, and then too. I realized that they were two different people. Same. Oh, my God, same. I really did for a very long time. <laughs> I mean, it took. I think I was, I said it out loud in my choir class, and then everyone shamed me, and then I pretended I hadn't said that, because that's what you do when you're, like, 13. You're like, I didn't, say, no, you misunderstood me. I said that they were different people. <laughs> that's how I handled that. But that's where I learned. <laughs> I learned it in public and in embarrassment. Yeah gonna move forward to our double feature segment of the show so I always try to pair like if you liked this here's the next thing to watch with this I'm gonna say not Holiday Inn Holiday Inn is kind of like the historic choice like I've honestly watched this with Holiday Inn at points in my life Um, because Holiday Inn is another Irving Berlin musical it's got like songs dancing similar to this one but again it has an incredibly racist musical number and it has incredibly racist depictions of African-American people so I'm like acknowledging that that is like what people in the past would have said to watch with this and I'm saying like no you can do better Um, (laughs) I would say if you're gonna pair this with something like the Irving Berlin pairs you could do would be Blue Skies which is like Bing Crosby and Fred Astaire it's weirdly dramatic a lot of these Irving Berlin musicals are weirdly dramatic and I'm like you could have just been a comedy but whatever it's fine so Blue Skies you could pair with this I feel like Call Me Madam would be a good pair with this it's got Vera Ellen in it Um, and then there's No Business Like Show Business also would be a good Irving Berlin pair it's like Ethel Merman Donald O'Connor Marilyn Monroe like check that one out maybe and then if you want like the Christmassy vibes I wrote down a whole list because this is a very hard movie to pair with because it's such an enigma and such a weird it is thing of its yeah. own so for Xmas vibes Christmas vibes I would say like meet me in St. Louis you could watch with this both nostalgic musicals or like Miracle on 34th Street just for funsies if you want your Christmas vibes and then in general like as a musical tie-in if you wanted you could watch High Society which is like Bing Crosby Um, It's not Irving Berlin songs, but it's like a star-studded cast, just like this. Or On the Town, same, star-studded cast, all coming together, and Vera Ellen dancing. 
Guys, this was such a delight. Thank you so much for watching this with me and for talking about it with me. I had so much fun. Thank you for having us. It's been great. I was going to watch this movie anyway, so. Like this and Christmas in Connecticut will both be watched again just for fun. Happy holidays, everybody. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you next time on Talk Classic to Me. Bye.